0: Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and generally speaking, what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but boys and girls, this is October now, this is, uh, we're getting close to the Halloween season, and honestly, Halloween is one of those holidays that I've always sort of enjoyed, but I've I just didn't really get, you know. And the reason I I've, I've always kind of struggled with figuring out what Halloween is, what it's all about and all that stuff is because this is no exaggeration for my entire life, Halloween has really been sort of like cosplay, you know? You 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 dress up as your uh, favorite superhero or 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 just whatever. And there's I'm I'm not trying to sound too purist about it, you know, because ultimately, you know, it is in, in the Western observance, you know, uh, this is sort of a, uh, I don't want to say artificial holiday, but there's not a whole lot of purity to it, but it's like at the same time, maybe I just tended to overthink things a little too much when I was a kid. I didn't understand why we arbitrarily choose one day out of the year to dress up like a superhero or like RoboCop or fucking whatever, and then just go to door trick-or-treating, right? So it actually took me a pretty long time to get Halloween and understand what it's all about. Specifically, that it's not supposed to be cosplay for adults, or even really for kids, for that matter. There's supposed to be an element of uh, of uh, fear and thrills and all that, and honestly, a lot of that that's just not really an element of Halloween anymore. Let's face it. So. But I do rather enjoy Halloween as a season and so I thought it might be kind of fun to spend the remainder of October talking about scary movies or perhaps scary subject matter or or something like that. Basically, anything that I can tie in in a kind of retarded sort of way to Halloween as a holiday, anything that I can tie in with that, I'm going to try and do it. So, I guess we'll see how successful I am with that. But, you know, in the here and the now, that that is kind of the idea. So, what I'm going to be doing with this series, you know, going forward, it's kind of tough to say. I mean, I'm not completely sure what I want to talk about just yet. I've got some ideas, but um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not completely certain just yet. So, anyway, but that, that's basically the idea. I want to talk about some some scary movies or as I say, lacking that something that you can kind of tie in in a kind of stupid way to Halloween, something that could kind of pass the squint test a little bit and so that's pretty much that And so for today's uh, today's subject I want to talk about Scream the first Scream movie from 1996 and the reason for that is because, number one this is a movie that has meant a lot not necessarily always a good thing, and I'll ex- expand upon that later, but this is a movie that's meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And from the outset, I think the only intellectually honest way that I can really talk about really any of these movies, or anything to do with horror movies, or, or, or just whatever, the only intellectually honest way for me to go about doing that is to, is just to... Put it, out all, put it all out on Front Street and just say that I'm not really a big horror movie kind of guy. There are certain people out there who really get into horror movies. Man, they just can't get enough horror movies. More and more and more and more. And I've never really been that guy, you know? I've never really been one of those people who just loves the shit out of horror movies. Or slasher movies or, or, or just whatever. As a genre, this th- this has just never really been my thing. Now, having said all of that, obviously there are a few scary movies out there that I kind of get into, and I do enjoy. I've talked about some of them. Hell, I think I even did uh, an episode about the entire uh, Paranormal Activity film series a couple of years ago. So obviously, this is th- this is not a genre that I that I haven't touched. It's just when I really start thinking about it. In terms of my favorite film genres, horror just isn't really all that close to the top of the list. Now, that's kind of changed, like in in a completely relative sort of way, that that has kind of changed. I spent a little bit of time last week, meaning at the time that I record this, last week, watching a couple of old uh, Hammer horror movies. These were... Well, not necessarily horror movies. I don't know. But anyway, uh, but these were uh, Hammer movies. Um, Let me think. I watched... For sure, I watched The Mummy. And then I watched The Hound of the Baskervilles. And honestly, I would have watched Dracula, but I just couldn't find it. So... Really though, that that was the one that I would have wanted to watch, but that just doesn't seem to be practical, so I didn't. But anyway, that's what I would have wanted to watch. So like I say, I'm getting a little bit more into horror, but I don't think I'm ever gonna be able to compete with like actual horror movie experts, you know? But one of the things that I think made Scream so successful is the fact that this was sort of like a slasher film for the masses, you know? Uh, timing really is everything with any movie that you release You know, my, my personal opinion and I'm, we can't really know what would have happened all we really know is what did happen but just to kind of make a comparison here I don't know if the Matrix would have, like the first Matrix movie I don't know if that would have been as big of a hit as it was if it had come out in 1998 or in 2000 there's something specifically about 1999 the matrix being released then it found an audience that i'm i am not at all sure would have existed there there was a level of success that i don't think the matrix would have been able to reach if you'd released it any other year you know and it could just be that in a certain sort of way the matrix was kind of counter programming to the phantom menace you know if uh I don't think anyone necessarily set out for it to be that way. But only a fool in the summer of 1999 would have denied that The Matrix, intentionally or unintentionally, did kind of serve as an alternative to to The Phantom Menace. And I'm kind of of the same opinion, just to kind of bring it all back to the subject, I'm kind of of the same opinion with Scream if Scream had been released in 1995 I don't know that it would have reached the same critical acclaim or for that matter commercial success and at the same rate I don't think it would have been as successful or as acclaimed if it had come out in 1997 there was something specifically about 1996 and this movie being released in it that I think allowed Scream to be everything that it could have been you know and so there's that there's just the timing of it but even when you get into just like the the raw basic ingredients of what scream is this was a horror movie unlike any other and for that reason you know i really hate describing things as a decade that this is that you know some tv show is so 80s or this movie is so 90s or, or or just whatever but there's really no denying the fact that this movie was released in and was a product of the nineteen nineties, with everything that implies. You know, the irony, uh, the this this meta thing, uh that the movie just does so well. The and I would even say there's a certain amount of cynicism that is prevalent throughout Scream. Not so much with the character of Sydney but with other characters they there is a certain degree of cynicism and technically you know people who study this shit and sound like they're a lot smarter than me they say that technically i am a millennial right and i mean putting aside the fact that all of these generation names are kind of made up bullshit for marketing purposes anyway just putting that aside for a minute There is some reality to the fact that all these different generations do have kind of defining characteristics. For example, the baby boomers, and I don't really care if this is upsetting to anybody, this is just how I feel about it. The baby boomers, very selfish, very covetous. I think that those, those descriptions tend to be very generally true. Now, they may not be true of every single fucking boomer out there, and that's fine. But it's true enough of the generation at large that I think we're safe. We're safe in saying that those are characteristics that are true in a very general sense, at the very least, right? And with millennials, we tend to be a rather idealistic bunch as a cohort. But honestly, guys there are gradations to everything. And what I find is that the upper spectrum of millennials, which is where I fall in, there is a fair amount less of idealism. And there is a fair amount of cynicism. You know, I don't, I'm not going to go so far as to say that we're as jaded as uh, Gen X, but, you know, there is a certain degree of of cynicism. And so my point in saying all of this and, and taking the side tangent is to say that, People that were my age and maybe a little bit older, it's tempting to to sit here and watch the movie and say, hey, I know people who are just like that, you know, just these kind of bitter, jaded, cynical fucks, and maybe they would, you know, make jokes about the fact that some of their classmates are dying at school, you know, um, and, you know, that isn't something that, I mean, I know me, that that's not something that I ever would have laughed at, but you connect to the material, however you connect to the material. And it's like, I looked around at, you know, the people that I went to school with and I, and I thought, you know what? I could picture some of these assholes making jokes, you know, if something, if this or something like this were to happen, IRL. Yeah. I, I, to me, it just didn't seem like it would be that big of a stretch. And I'm going to circle back to that in just a minute, but, uh, that was at least the prejudice that was lurking in the back of my mind the first time that I saw a scream. And the first time that I saw a scream, I th- i want to say that it had, it had been out for a month. And by this point, the movie's reputation very much preceded it. With everybody but me, that is, somehow, this movie came out and made such a big splash, and everybody was talking about it, and somehow, I just never heard about it. I don't know what to tell you, but somehow this movie, whatever critical acclaim it reached, it somehow reached without me really hearing very much about it, at least at first. And so when I sat down in a movie theater, in the movie theater to watch it, I mean, guys, you got to understand, I mean, this, this truly was a case of like first impression for me, you know, I had truly no preconceived notions about, what this movie was going to be i had no uh, expectations of oh my god this is going to be the greatest thing ever the critics are just raving you know none of that you know all i knew was that my brother and his girlfriend of the time really enjoyed the movie they found out that i hadn't seen it and so they it, it was kind of like i guess i was the third wheel that night but uh they you know we all went out to see it together and this really was for me it was kind of a This was a really big head turn, you know, because up to that point, I mean, I'd seen slasher movies. I did grow up and come of age somewhat in the 80s, but I did grow up in the 80s. And actually, I guess that's not really true at all. I didn't come of age at all in the 80s, did I? Fuck it, whatever. Point is, I did. I was a kid during the 80s. That's the point. And so you couldn't swing a dead cat around by the tail at the video store, without knocking over these big displays of all these different slasher movies, you know, and I mean it's obvious things, you know, like some of the big and iconic uh, franchises that people remember fondly to varying degrees to this very day, like the Halloween film series, you know, Freddy Krueger, uh, uh, you know, he was a a really big character, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, the Friday the Thirteenth series, but also just those other kind of also ran B movies that. I don't know that they're necessarily highly celebrated in today's world. But nevertheless, I mean, there were other slasher movies that were coming out in the 80s, and those were out there too. And my point is, that stuff was, it was just so ubiquitous in the 80s. And so this was a genre that I was, I would say, pretty conversant with. But at the same time, nobody had ever seen a movie like Scream before. And there is a movie... And I'm going to talk about this in a future episode, so I don't want to give away the story here. But I would, you know, I would draw a lot of comparisons to Scream. And guys, you're going to know it when you hear it. I talk about a movie in episode 300. I'm joined with a, a very special guest, in fact. And he and I, we talk about a, a movie in uh, Trinis Magnus Punches Reality, episode number 300. And I see a fair amount of similarities between Scream and this movie. So when you when you hear episode 300, just keep in mind, this is what I'm talking about. And not in terms of genre. Or for that matter, even so much in terms of tone and style. But Scream and this, uh, this nameless other movie that you're going to find out more about in episode 300. They do sort of comment. These are movies that comment on certain tropes of a particular genre while at the same time fulfilling them. Now, in the case of Scream, I think this is very much a case of life imitates art whereas in this other movie that I'm going to talk about in episode 300, to me, that's more of a clear-cut case of art imitating life, but in e- either you know, in either case, I do see a fair amount of similarities between these two movies and I sort of Especially when I was younger, I and I enjoyed the idea of a movie that kind of metatextually comments upon art, life, and the relationship that these two things have with each other. That, at least in theory, should be separate. But let's face it, society influences art and art influences society. And I think the clear and undeniable case that Scream makes... Is that life is definitely, definitely imitating art in *Scream* and and again, I mean that just that that comes from the fact that these characters are commenting uh, commenting upon slasher film tropes at the same time that they fulfill those tropes and saying, okay, well this is what's going to happen now, or I'm going to survive because of this. And this was such this was such a I mean, it seems a little whatever these days, but I mean, guys, you, you, you got to understand, like if, if you weren't around for this back in 1996 or you were just disconnected from it or something like that, I cannot overemphasize what a revolutionary approach that this was, you know, that just in terms of the style of Scream, putting aside the fact that it is an effective slasher movie all by itself, the the style and the tone in which it tells its story this had never really been done before. I mean, I might give the nod to Wes Craven's New Nightmare that I'm not the only one in the room who kind of sees Wes Craven's New Nightmare as a little bit of a forerunner to scream. But I think it. I, I think most critics, when they were watching Wes Craven's New Nightmare, it's like the main question they all seemed to have was what am I supposed to do with this? I mean, this isn't a, a conventional Friday th- or sorry, nightmare on Elm street, uh, uh, narrative, uh, Freddie, in a certain sense, he's barely in it. And it's like Heather Langen is at once an actress, like an IRL actress, but she's also a character in the movie Wes Craven's a character in the movie. And it's like, the world of a nightmare on Elm Street is starting to seep into the real world. It's like, what the fuck is this? You know? And I don't think that critics were able to really get their heads around what Wes Craven was up to in New Nightmare. And I think that was less of a problem for for Scream, you know? And again, this kind of ties in, you know, with this idea that I had I was expounding upon just a minute ago that Scream needed to be released in 1996. The Matrix needed to be released in 1999. So if you buy into the idea of alternate universes, you know, like basically a multiverse, it stands to reason that there's got to be at least one alternate universe out there somewhere where Wes Craven's New Nightmare is the one that got released in 1996. And that went on to rave reviews and spectacular business and all this stuff. And who's to say, you know what the outcome of that might've been. But, you know, my point is I think Wes Craven's new, new nightmare. I think the main issue that that movie has is it just came out at the wrong time. You know, scream came out at the right time. The matrix definitely came out at the right time. Wes Craven's new nightmare arguably came out at the wrong time. That was like 1993. I want to say, and even if it had been released in 1995, maybe it would have had a different fate. But I don't think Wes Craven's New Nightmare was understood in its time. Scream definitely was. And to me, it's the sign of a quality product that it's not just that it inspires imitators, because when you think about it, how hard is that to do, really? It's not so much about the imitators. It's more about the fact that This had influence, you know, it wasn't just that um, a bunch of different writers tried their hand at making their own Scream. It's that Scream affected an entire genre. It went far beyond just this one series of movies. And again, I'm trying to draw a distinction here. It's not just that there were imitators, the entire fucking genre was transformed as a result of scream now whether that's for the good or for the bad that's kind of uh, that that's kind of above my pay grade i can't answer that what i can say is that this really did start something you know and right from the get go scream very much it defied expectations you know it and you 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 see that a lot where it's almost as if this is a this is inherently a positive you know ipso facto that such and such comic book or such and such movie or or, or just whatever there's a word it's not defied expectation it it, it basically or not I don't even know if under my I, I I'm blanking on the exact expression but you know uh basically something de- well for lack of a better way of putting it it defies expectations you know and so often you know that's treated as if it's a inherently positive thing just by virtue of being that something like i say some movie or 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 just whatever it 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 goes in a direction that 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 you weren't expecting it basically like i say it defies your expectations and and again i mean i'm not undermine is not is not the the right word to use but it's like for some reason that's the only one that's that's coming to mind here but it's you know people talk about it uh that um it something defies expectations um as if that by itself is all by itself that's that's automatically makes something good because it it does the unexpected or or uh, yeah, here's the here here it is, this is what I was thinking about. It subverts expectations, right? As if that's automatically a good thing, you know, uh, that something does something that you don't expect. you know, this movie goes in a direction you weren't expecting or these characters say something that subverts expectations, as if that's inherently a positive thing. In this case, though, I do think that the uh, subversion that Scream goes for in terms of what we expect from these slasher films, I do think that actually works for its favor. And really, that's true from the beginning. Uh, Casey Becker, she is... <clears throat> just by virtue of the fact that she's played by Drew Barrymore, you expect her, oh, well, she's a star. She's I, I expect her to survive the entire movie. She's dead in something like 10 minutes within that movie. And so... It really throws the audience for a loop, you know. You were expecting her to survive, and she's gone. And let's face it, Drew Barrymore was a was a much bigger name and a much bigger star in nineteen ninety six than Nev Campbell. That's not a knock on Nev Campbell. Talented a, a an actress a, a, as she might be, Drew Barrymore was just by any sane definition. She was just a a. Much more, she was a, a a much bigger name, and she dies pretty quick. And what we get in <clears throat> this opening sequence of Scream is number one. I mean, it it shows us what Ghostface's uh, method is. You know how he works, and you know basically what his M.O. is. But it also throws audiences a curveball that we subconsciously expected Drew Barrymore to survive even though she doesn't and so number one that's a curveball and number two it subconsciously raises the question of if a big star like her is a goner what does that say about everybody else and it's it's just a really powerful opening you know for the movie and done very well very effective I wouldn't change a thing with it you know so anyway so moving on from there, one of the things that I really like about, about Scream is maybe more than any other movie that Wes Craven, or any other slasher movie at least, that Wes Craven ever ever directed, Scream is very preoccupied with setting the mood, you know? So there's a point between phone calls when uh, Casey Becker is uh, cooking some popcorn she hangs up on the killer not knowing yet that he's the killer but she hangs up on the killer and then we get this establishing shot of uh the becker house and it's dark you can hear some crickets chirping and you also hear this kind of uh twisty sound of uh the rope swing it's swaying in the breeze and you can hear this straining sound on on the rope And number one, what I think Craven is doing in that little shot there is he's foreshadowing Casey's death, you know, let's face it, the hangman's noose. But there's also the fact of, you know, Casey was eventually strung up and then hung on the, um, she was hung on the rope, the, the rope swing and her guts are spilled out all over the place. So there's that, but there's also just the mood of it. It's just a creepy looking uh, shot. It, it's very unsettling. And you know that something bad is about to happen here. And that's conveyed in the mood and the lighting and just that 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 sound of the rope tightening, that k- 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 k sound and all of that. It's a very powerful moment. And like I say, there's a symbolic element. It's foreshadowing Casey's death, but it's also establishing or reinforcing really it's reinforcing the mood and the tension of everything and and so there there, there's one example right there another example comes later on uh, uh sydney she's basically waiting for tatum to pick her up she's she ends up falling asleep at her house and you there there are these establishing shots of the prescott house the sun is is going down and Again, there's the symbolic element of, yeah, the sun is going down and it's taking Sydney's innocence with it. But there's also the fact of, um, uh, again, of mood. This is transitioning from daytime to nighttime. Darkness is descending upon the, the Prescott household, and Sydney is completely oblivious to it, literally sleeping through the entire thing. She understands the seriousness of uh, Steve and Casey's death she doesn't take seriously the fact that this is this could be happening to her she literally sleeps through the darkness that is descending upon the her own home and and there are other you know examples of this as well where you know there is symbolism but then there is also mood that, that that's being established here that is just it's all over the place in in Scream. There are just so many examples of it. And this, again, this is not the only movie where Wes Craven did it, but I do think this is the movie where Wes Craven did it best, you know, and it's just, like I say, it's just amazingly well done. And then you get into the cast and actually this may, this may be WB casting before there really was a WB, but whatever very teen drama uh friendly cast, and kind of literally so, really, because Nev Campbell made her bones on Party of five, which was a teen drama, and that certainly is where i where I knew Nev Campbell from, and so you know just this this cast of young, pretty faces and all of whom I would say. <clears throat> Are, 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 cast very well in their respective roles. Uh, it's one of those times when it is, it is helpful to remember that these people are actors. So even though they may have been cast to type in certain ways, Sidney Prescott is a, especially in the first Scream movie, she's very different from the character that Nev Campbell played on Party of Five, whose name I'm now blanking on. Not Claudia. She was Julia. That's who it was. Julia Salinger. That's what it was. And so Julia Salinger and Sidney Prescott are very different people, you know. Uh, my sense of... My sense of, of, of Julia Salinger was that she... She's one of those people that never... I'm not trying to say this in a mean way, but her innocence definitely needed a paint job, you know? She was very much aware of the ways of the world, as it were, some of the bitter realities of life. She was very well acquainted with those things. And so she tended to just kind of take life as it came, you know? She was adaptable, and she is capable of being hurt. But in the end, she's able to get through just about anything, you know? whereas sydney especially in in the first scream movie she is capable of breaking you know there's a there's a tenderness there there's an innocence there and yes sydney is the final girl and part of being the final girl is you have to dig down deep and find strength inside of yourself that you didn't know existed just to survive the experience of which is a very transformative one, and so she's going to be a different person after credits roll in the movie for the end of the movie as she was when credits rolled at the beginning of the movie. And that is a transformation, certainly, that Sydney undergoes during the runtime of Scream. But she is capable, this is my point Sydney is capable of being broken, it can happen, and so there's an innocence there. Not quite naivete, because let's face it, she does know what what, uh, Billy, her boyfriend, wants. And she doesn't exactly completely give it to him, at least at the start of the movie. But she does, if you catch my meaning, she does kind of show him a preview of coming attractions. And so I guess what I'm saying is she's not exactly a goody two-shoes, but in general she is... She is very innocent, not naive, but innocent. And Nev Campbell brings that across in a way that's not over the top because I mean, look guys, I love, I in fact, I make no secret of loving uh, the Halloween film series, especially the first movie. But one of the this may be a controversial opinion to some. But one of the things that I kind of struggle with in the first Halloween movie, it's not Jamie Lee Curtis in every single one of her scenes, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis in certain of her scenes. Because my sense of Jamie Lee Curtis is that this is not who she is. She is not Laurie Strode. She she was never the sweet, innocent, wholesome type. When Jamie Lee Curtis was a teenager, my sense of her is that she was? Uh, she was a little bit of an ass kicker, you know. She'll she'll tell you what she thinks, you know. She'll speak her mind. She'll fire right back at you. And Laurie Strode, as we see her in the first Halloween movie, that ain't that is not Laurie Strode. She is innocent. She is wholesome. She is pure. She is naive, and I don't think. Jamie Lee Curtis necessarily always does a spectacular job of bringing those qualities about Laurie across. You know, there are a few scenes, not very many, but there are a few scenes where Jamie Lee Curtis's performance, just to me, is not convincing. It's just not. You know, and lest I be accused of hating on Jamie Lee Curtis, she would do much better performances in other movies, even other Halloween movies. But specifically in that first Halloween movie from 1978, there are moments where I'm sorry, Jamie Lee Curtis is just not that convincing. That's not a problem for Nev Campbell here in Scream. Again, not naive, but definitely innocent. And I never question any of it, you know? And she definitely brings home the bacon for me, sacrilegious, though some may consider this to be, Nev Campbell brings home the bacon and scream in a way that I don't think Jamie Lee Curtis does in Halloween. You understand? So, anyway, uh, you get into other things. This was, for a long time, this was one of the only things that I ever saw. Oh, God, now, of course, I'm... uh, Why, oh, why can... Oh, fuck it, I'm just going to... I'm just going to take another look into this, uh, since apparently my memory is failing me, you know, God, I should be able to remember this chick's name and it kind of bugs me that I don't, but the chick who plays uh, Tatum for a long time, this was the, this was the only, uh, movie that I could ever remember, uh, seeing her, seeing her in. And, you know, guys, again, as much as anything, these characters have to be a little bit iconic or at least archetypal. They can't really be fleshed out, nuanced, uh, and fully shaded in, fully developed characters. Uh, her her name is Rosa McGowan, but they can't. They have to be a little bit more archetypal, just so we don't have to spend you know several minutes of screen time developing all these characters. A certain amount of shorthand. Kind of goes with the territory, but the fact is, you know we all knew somebody like Tatum, as played by Rose McGowan. We all knew someone like Tatum uh, uh, back in back in school where she was fun-loving, she was spunky. There's not a whole lot of naivete going on with Tatum either, but she's just a little bit how shall I say happy go-lucky. Uh, than, than Sydney is. You know, there's a joy in life that that Tatum has, that is very much in contrast. I would say to to Sydney. It's not, in, in fact, in a in a couple of scenes, it's enough to make you wonder what exactly is sustaining their friendship because they they just they are such different people. But again, it's a slasher movie, so you you just sort of go with it. But in any case, you know, this is. Very much typical of the slasher genre, where you have the one fun-loving party girl, and of course, you know she's going to come to a pretty grisly ending. And honestly, this is one of those, this is one of the few kills in the movie that I I kind of struggle with, you know, or at least I struggled with for a while, you know. Uh, ulti- I mean, obviously, you know, spoiler alert, but, you know, the, the the killer in the movie is actually revealed to be two different people. Uh, Billy and Stu, and for the longest time, you know, one of the questions I had was, why would Stu want to kill his own girlfriend, you know? And I mean, I guess you can kind of rationalize that, that, you know, Billy wanted to kill his girlfriend. I mean, she was the main target of all this. So if Billy's girlfriend isn't safe, why would Stu's be, why, why would Stu's girlfriend be safe? And I mean, in a certain kind of way, Tatum she was she was an interloper she was basically in the wrong place at the wrong time and so she got poked with a knife right Sydney was the real target you know uh, Billy chose her because Sydney's mom was having an affair with with Billy's father which drove Billy's mother away and so he was taking out his anger on on Sydney and when you think about it a pretty fucking sadistic way and so you could say, or at least you could argue, that their entire relationship was a sham from the get-go. Basically, Billy needed a way to get close to Sydney. He knew he was good-looking and desirable, and so he sought her out. It actually goes a long way towards towards explaining why it is that somebody like Billy would ever be attracted to somebody like Sydney. I mean, if anything, you'd think Billy would probably have been more desirable to Tatum. But... Billy had a plan. Fine. But it does kind of raise the question, why would Stu want to kill, or for that matter, be okay, be presumably okay, with the murder of his own girlfriend? And we don't really get much of an explanation of that in the movie. Ultimately, this is a slasher film. You need a body count. And so Tatum plays pretty well into that. So I've even kind of got a few reservations about her death. I mean, I don't think a garage door opener is going to be strong enough by design. You understand. I don't think it would be strong enough to lift uh, Tatum off the ground and then smash her head against the ceiling the way it did. Whether that's just because garage door openers aren't that strong by accident or they're not that strong by design. Either way, I don't think they're that strong. Uh, Tatum looks like she weighs probably, I would say, maybe 120 pounds or something like that. I don't think a garage door opener is strong enough to lift that kind of weight. Especially, well, whatever. I just, I, I, but whatever. It's a movie. You got to go with it. So I go with it. I'm just saying uh, her death in general, but the specific means of her death, neither of those things really work for me all that well. But you know what? Maybe that's just nitpicking. I don't know. It's just, I at least wanted to, to, to get it out there. Now, to talk about Scream is to talk, well, it's not necessarily to talk about the sequels, but it's like, at the same rate, you're, you're kind of not doing your job if you don't talk about the sequels at least a little bit. And so, let me just say that, honestly, guys, really none of the sequels work all that well for me. They just don't. Scream, the first Scream, I think it, it has a good balance of irreverence mixed with genuine horror. It gets the balance pretty well, I think. Scream 2, I think it errs on the side of taking itself way too fucking seriously. I mean, I would go so far as to say that Scream 2 borders on being melodramatic. I mean, it's, in a, in a certain kind of way, it's... It's almost hard to believe that this was made generally by the same people that made the first movie. It's like, did you watch the first movie? Because this is getting a little over the top in some, in some cases. Like I say, it, it borders on melodrama, right? Scream 2 does. Scream 3, I think it has the opposite problem. It, if anything, doesn't take itself sort of seriously enough. And it, it it's enough to make you wonder, do the characters completely realize the fact that there's another butcher knife-wielding maniac out there that's picking them off one by one? And so there's that. And then Scream 4, I'm prepared to call that a noble effort, but maybe it's just the absolute state of the horror genre or the slasher shub, uh, sub-genre these days. That it's... You know all this meta and meta meta and opposite of meta and audience subversion and all this. It it's really hard, I think, to make a genuinely compelling slasher film. Anything other, but anything other than completely earnestly, you know. Uh, it's like <sighs> Scream Four. I think tries to get back to basics, but in getting back to basics, it's it's relaunching without rebooting, because rebooting is a bad idea. Uh, it's kind of meta stacked on top of meta with irony in between. It's, uh, it's kind of muddled. I mean, it's a good movie. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, this is, it's a little too brainy. You know, you need, it, it kind of engages your intellect a little bit too much in order to justify the reality of its own existence over and against the basic expectation, let's face it, that most people have these days, that it was the time and the place to reboot Scream rather than make Scream 4. And the movie itself readily acknowledges that, but in so doing, it basically complicates a formula that when you think about it is already complicated enough as Scream 2 and Scream 3 demonstrate, you know? So, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's... Again, triple underline this part. Scream 4 is not a bad movie. I'm not prepared to say that about Scream 2, guys. But Scream 4 is not a bad movie. It definitely has its heart in the right place. It's just that... the bullshit just kind of piles up so fast that it's kind of hard to justify this movie's existence at the same time that the movie itself is justifying its existence while it argues against its existence. Does that make sense? And so, I mean, it's just the meta kind of goes a little into overdrive a bit, you know, and I don't know, it's, it's hard to put it into words, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is the real irony of the movie. The best way to approach Scream 4 is just to appreciate it as a simple, straightforward slasher movie and leave it at that. Maybe that's the best way to do it. But in the main, guys, for me you only really need the first Scream movie. And everything after that, look, if you like it, good for you. But for me, I, I think I'm good just with the first Scream movie. But I want to circle back to something that I kind of touched upon earlier. I, I have had a sort of a, a a complicated experience, a complicated history, shall we say, with, with Scream, right? And what I mean by that is when I first saw the movie, like I said... The idea of making jokes about the brutal murder of people that I went to school with, guys, I know me. I never would have done that. But I went to school with people that I could easily picture doing that. Oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so got knifed to death by some weirdo uh, a couple of of nights ago, and so, (laughs) isn't that so funny? (laughs) I could have pictured... Uh, people that I went to school with saying shit like that, you know, just being that fucking insensitive, you know? And I believed that for quite a few years, but as you can imagine, that idea seriously got challenged by the Columbine shooting, you know? I didn't need anybody to tell me that you know the the brutal murder especially of people my age but brutal murder in general this is no laughing matter i didn't need anybody to tell me that believe me i already knew but the columbine shooting was that was just such a a big deal that it really did affect the way that i viewed scream the way that I understood scream, you know, because guys, I want to be clear on this. Okay. I went to school in Texas. Okay. I didn't know those kids. Okay. I didn't know anything about them. Never met them. I couldn't pick any of them out of a, out of a random series of pictures. Okay. I never knew them. And yet I kind of did, you know, I didn't know them specifically, but I went to school with people who were just like them, you know, And these were people that all they wanted to do, whatever their failings may have been, the shooting victims, maybe they tormented the shooters, maybe they didn't, maybe uh, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, maybe the shooters were settling a grudge. I don't know what was going on there, okay? I've heard a million different stories from a million different directions, but at the end of the day, these were people who just wanted to live their lives and be happy, just like all the rest of us, you know? And one morning in April of 1999, they got shot to death. It's that simple. You know, they had their whole lives ahead of them, just like I did. And they got shot to death. And I'm watching all this happen on TV. And again, guys, I want to underline this part. I did not know those kids, okay? It's not like I was friends with any of them. I didn't know them. But it's like at the same time, I was just crying like a baby because I knew people who were just like Uh, the kids that were running out of the school, scared out of their minds. I knew kids who looked just like the, uh, the ones that, that were murdered. I knew people who were just like that. I was friends with people who were just like that, you know, Uh, Littleton as a town, not all that different from Tomball, at least back then it wasn't all that different from Tomball. It wasn't hard to see how something like that could happen in Tomball where I went to school didn't take a whole lot of imagination, and it's it's just that really did hit me where I lived. You know, I mean, uh, again, I, I, sometimes people glom on to tra- to to these bloody tragedies as a way to make themselves feel more important or something, and that's not what was going on with me. The point is, it was in every possible way it was easy for me to empathize with the horrible ordeal that those that those poor kids had been through. And so, like I say, I was crying like a baby. But certainly in the aftermath of Columbine and everything that happened there, it was very different from Scream in a lot of ways. It was very different, you know? This happened in the shooting. It happened in Littleton, Colorado. I went to school in Tomball, Texas. And yet the paranoia you know the the tension the the fear it was with you because everybody realized that Littleton isn't all that different from Tomball it could happen here too and the other realization was they realized everybody else knew that too and this is not to speak of you know, the police state that the school was kind of transformed into in the last couple of weeks of the 1999 school year, 1998, 1999 school year. Is it not to speak of the fact that it was kind of turned into a little bit of a pressure cooker environment? And, you know, I'm just going to say it, you know, bomb threats, they were made by people who realized it is at least possible to do this. And I can make these threats. And people are going to take. They're going to take them very seriously, you know. There were times when the administrators didn't want to tell us that a bomb threat had been made, but we're not stupid. A bomb threat had certainly been made. Not for nothing was the school evacuated, you know. And it's just the atmosphere of uh, of mistrust, of paranoia. You know, you're, you're looking around at your fellow students and you're just kind of asking yourself... Who's it gonna be, you know? Who's gonna be the guy that comes in here guns blazing some morning, you know? And obviously it never happened, but the fact is we all knew, at least in theory, that it was possible. And having lived through, it's not exactly the exact same thing that was happening in Scream, but I thought it was a similar enough event that it did kind of change the way that I, understood and processed scream for a lot of years i mean this was no joke for me i mean you know no nobody ever came after me with a knife or a gun for that matter that never happened to me but it's like that did happen to somebody so number one this is nothing to laugh about and number two the aftermath of it no one was making any jokes about this guys everyone was a little bit afraid everyone was a little bit more on their guard. Everybody was eyeing the exits, the emergency exits, a little bit more closely, you know? And all that. And so it took a long time for me, this is my point, it took a a pretty long time for me to regain my appreciation of and enthusiasm for Scream as a film. You know, I mean, again, I'm not trying to... You know, there is this idea, uh, and you see it online all the time, this concept of stolen valor, of you know people who pretend like they're military vets when in fact they're not. Well, I think the same thing, it kind of holds true for uh, trauma. You know, there is, I guess, stolen trauma. So I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to glom onto a tragedy that had nothing to do with me. I'm just saying that living in the aftermath of that tragedy, as I did, you know, I've kind of got a little bit of perspective on that, you know? And so, again, what I'm trying to say is that this was... This was something that very much affected my enjoyment of Scream, and so it took a long time for me to kind of get things back to normal a little bit. And eventually I did, you know? I, it's a little bit easier now to appreciate Scream as as just, it's a work of fiction, it's a slasher film, it's an innovative slasher film, but it is still a slasher film. And yeah, you know, maybe there's a, there, there are elements of this movie that hit a little bit too close to home for me now, but at the end of the day, this is still a slasher movie. Treated as such you know, so anyway, and that's pretty much where I'm coming from with Scream these days, so no, I don't love it as much as I once did, oh my god, this is the greatest horror movie ever, they should all be like this, I don't think that anymore, but I do still enjoy it, and it is still, um, you know, like I say, there are parts of it that kind of make me a little bit uncomfortable these days, but uh, because of real life events that have nothing to do with me, but, uh, you know, Nevertheless, I, I I can still enjoy most of this movie. And so, uh, and so there you go. That, I think, is... Uh, I don't think that's everything that I've got to say about Scream, but I guess without a co-host, I think that pretty much hits the high points of it, at least for me. So maybe at some point I may revisit this movie in the future. I'm not making any promises on that. But maybe at some point I will. I don't really know. Now, as to next week, I... No, I've got two separate ideas for what I want to talk about I'm not sure which movie it's gonna be it could be one movie or it could be another I mean I'm, I'm honestly I'm not really too sure about it but uh again this sort of ties in with this uh, theme of of uh, Halloween and uh, goings-on with that so I don't know just this kind of loose halloween season series that i'm working my way through i'm not really sure what i'm going to be talking about i am kind of toying with the idea though of releasing actually you know what maybe i'll release that episode later this week rather than next week that way i can get all these halloween movies and i don't know i'll i'll figure something out so Uh, The next episode, it may be released later this week, or it could be released uh, at the usual time next week. I'm not really sure which one it's going to be, but either way, I think that's pretty much it for me, at least for right now. So bye, everybody. I will see you next time. feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And... Just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required, batteries not included. Many will enter, few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Manzacour of Milan, Italy.